Well, let me begin uh, the message today. I have the privilege of continuing a sermon series that I started a couple of weeks ago, a series that I'm simply calling The Book of Jonah. And as you guessed, this series is set in the Old Testament book uh, of Jonah. And at the beginning of this series and throughout the series, I felt the need to clarify that this story uh, is not just about a, a man and a fish. That's certainly uh, a portion of this story, but this story is about uh, a man and his God. Uh, and, and we can see our reflections in Jonah's story. This story is also about a God and people who are far from him. It gives us a really good picture of how God relates to those who are far from him. And I think this is so important because there's something in this story for everybody. Uh, I imagine that in a room this size, a crowd this size, there are folks in here who have made a royal mess of their life. Uh, I imagine that in this room today, and I expect that there be in this room every week somebody who's never heard the gospel, somebody who's never uh, heard that God is seeking and trying to save those who are lost. And so if you're here today in that shoe, it's no coincidence that you've come uh, to church on this beautiful June morning and I believe the Lord wants to speak to you. But I mentioned also that this is a story of, uh, that helps us see how God relates to those who have already believed and made a commitment to him. Um, and in that sense, there's something uh, in this story for all of us. This story, as I've said week after week, is a comprehensive look at the mega theme of this story, and that is the mercy of God, which for us is the oil of the kingdom of God. It's the thing that makes the kingdom work. And so it behooves us to take a look at this story over these few weeks. Uh, for those of you who are just engaging the story this week, I just want to briefly recap uh, the story of Jonah, what we've covered so far. So God came, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, who is an Old Testament prophet, and the prophet just a person who speaks uh, on God's behalf. And God said to Jonah, get up and go to this wicked, murderous city, of Nineveh and tell these people that I'm going to destroy it. Now, baked in that message was a message of warning, and Jonah knew God and that God would be merciful. Jonah doesn't want to go deliver this message because he doesn't like the Ninevites. And so he goes in the opposite direction, boards a boat, but God pursues Jonah, causes a storm to get his attention. Long story short, the sailors on this boat throw Jonah overboard because they want nothing to do with God's wrath. God in his mercy comes and swallows Jonah with a great fish. And Jonah spends three days repenting and talking to God. And basically, in that time he spent in the fish, he remembered God. That's what the scripture said last week. He remembered God. And as he remembered God, as he had time sequestered in the belly of that fish, he remembered God. And he was able to see God's hand in his situation. He was able to see where he went wrong. And most importantly, in the belly of that fish, he was able to repent and see a meaningful way forward. And at the end of chapter 2, as we looked at it last night, the Lord caused that fish to spit Jonah out on dry land. And this is where we pick up the story uh, this morning in chapter 3. I want to continue this series by talking about something super important, something that we can't really talk about the mercy of God comprehensively and not talk about what we're going to talk about today, and that is simply second chances, right? Uh, mercy, if you define it, uh, is basically an undeserved second opportunity. 
an undeserved do-over, right? And so it behooves us to talk about this whole notion of second chances because we serve the God of the second chance. And I, I just, if, 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 you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're walking and talking and breathing, you've had the benefit of receiving a second chance. Does anybody remember, anybody recall a time you've been given a second chance? I'm sure all of us can think of it. I think, you know, a couple of memories come to mind where people could have really nailed me. They could have really called me out. They could have really made me pay uh, for what I had done, and they let me slide. They gave me a second chance. And I tell you, there is nothing in the world like a second chance, especially when you don't have it coming, especially when you've messed up. There's nothing in the world like a second chance. But spe- second chances are special, right? They're fragile. They're, they're delicate. You need wisdom to use them well. And since we've all been given a second chance to the person and work of Jesus and the cross, it behooves us to respond well to those second chance, chances. And a God of mercy is a God of a second chance, of a third chance, of a fourth chance. And somehow we need some helpful and faithful instruction and wisdom as to how to navigate that. And I think Jonah chapter 3 helps us see that well. I've titled this message this morning, The God of a Second Chance. We're going to be journeying through Jonah chapter 3. Would you meet me there in your Bibles this morning? Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have Bibles, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. You can also feel free to use your phone or your tablet, however you engage with the Scriptures. We'll also be projecting the words on the screens. A God of a second chance. And as we engage this today, I just know that there's somebody here today that's made a royal mess of their life. And you, and you know it. You're aware of it. I think today is for you. Uh, additionally, I think that there's somebody here who has made a royal mess of your life, and you don't quite know it yet. You've been blaming other people. You've been pointing the fingers. And I believe that the Spirit of the Lord, through this message, will gently yet firmly make you aware of your contribution to the madness because he wants you to take advantage of the second chance he offers. A God of the second chance, Jonah chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. While you find it, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God of a second chance. Thank you that you don't throw us away, that you don't discard us. Instead, in your mercy, you see fit to allow us to do it again. Father, we confess this morning that we have squandered the second and third chance. We felt entitled. We felt like you owed it to us. And so we haven't appreciated uh, that second chance in in the way that we should. Father, would you teach us this morning? Would you humble us? Would you cause us to bow low before you today? May a spirit of contrition, a spirit of repentance sweep through the room today that we might humble ourselves before your word, your mighty hand. May we respond well to what you said before us. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 3, I'll start at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. That's important, a second time. He said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, 
And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent his, this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw that they had done what they had done, excuse me, and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now, this story is powerful uh, because it demonstrates how both Jonah and the wicked city of Nineveh, the city that God had intended to destroy, both got a do-over. They both got a second chance. And it's necessary for us to see if we're trying to find ourselves in this picture, if we're trying to find ourselves in this story, it's helpful and necessary for us to see where we are in this story. Because some of us, particularly those of you who are far from the Lord, those of you who really don't know anything about faith, here you just... You're just kicking tires. Today, you're just peeking in the window. You've heard about something. Maybe you saw transformation happen in the life of somebody that you know or love. Maybe you Googled us and said, hey, I just, I got to be in church on Sunday. If you're far from God, you can see yourselves as the Ninevites. The folks in that wicked city who are, are gone their own way, who, who aren't caring about the one true God, and right, you, you see yourself as somebody who's very far from God. On the other hand, there are lifers in the room. And I, I consider myself to be a lifer, right? I, I, I was a preacher's kid, born and raised in the church. My earliest memories are in the pews of the church. And so when I was younger, I mean, three, four times a week was a light week of church. You know, they canceled something, and we had three or four, you know, weeks, day, days of the week in church, right? Uh, and just sort of maybe lived a very straight-laced life, you know, didn't get into too much trouble, stayed on the path more or less. This story is also for us because that's kind of Jonah, right? There's a certain strand of self-righteousness that visits the lifers, the churched, right? Because we see people uh, sinning differently, and we conclude that we are sinless. Well, maybe we do want a second slice of pie sometimes, but beyond that. <laughs> but I love how this story opens with Jonah the professional Christian, on God's payroll, a prophet, sanctioned to speak for him, and Jonah looks God in the face and he tells him, no, get somebody else. I'm not doing that. And it, it's important that we put that in the same category with those who are sleeping around, drinking and drugging to excess, doing all of the things that we have labeled sin. Sin is rebellion. Sin is wanting to go our own way and do our own thing. And if Jonah teaches us nothing is that we are all in the same boat and that we are all sinners 
Saved by grace, you just happen to sin differently than maybe I do. You just happen to need God and his mercy in a different way than I do, but this shows us that we should not turn our nose up at anybody because we all, both Jonah and the Ninevites, need a second chance. And in chapter 3, we see that they are given this opportunity. And so if it's true that we serve a God of a second chance, and we do, how is it that we should steward that second chance? How is it that we should appropriate this beautiful gift of mercy in a way that is pleasing to God? I think the folks in Jonah chapter 3 get it right, and they present to us this morning three things, three ways uh, that we're to, res- to respond to this second chance. And I think this is a picture of repentance for us. And I prayed earlier that a, that a spirit of repentance and contrition would sweep through us because I really believe that the Lord wants us to, to bow low before him today. And hopefully that be- can begin as we digest his word today. So three things I see that these folks in chapter 3 did in order to take full advantage of the second chance. The first they di- thing they did is they, they received God's word. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to receive God's word. And to receive something is, there's nothing passive about receiving God's word, like, like to do that right, right? I think it's important for us to know that God's word can come to us in many forms. God's word can come to us as truth, as righteous truth about who God is. It can come to us as righteous truth about who we are. It could be affirming, it could be flattering, or it could be challenging and indicting, but it's truth from God. Uh, God's words can come to us as a command, get up, do this, or stop doing this, or change this, or tweak that, leave that person alone, go engage that person. The scriptures are full of commands that God has given us. And for those of us with a prayer life, those of us who understand God's voice, we know that our communication with God are full of these commands. Scripture's full of these commands. Uh, God's word can come in the form of a promise. I will do this. And as we see throughout Scripture, those promises can be things that make you celebrate, cry tears of joy, or they can be the sort of thing that causes you to cry tears of regret and sorrow. Promises. Uh, They could be warnings, various prophetic insight. The word of the Lord has to be received in order to gain this second chance. And for Jonah, the word of the Lord that came to him, especially in in chapter 3 here, was a command. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and deliver the message I have given you. He doesn't even repeat the message. He said, I already told you to go tell him once. I'm telling you a second time to go, and hopefully you'll respond well. And for the people of Nineveh, uh, the word of the Lord that came to them was a promise, and it was a warning. And baked in this promise and baked in this warning was deeper truths about who God is, about his might, about his power, about the power he has to uh, affect the destinies of those that he's created and the things that he's created. We already saw in chapter 1 that God has command over creation. 
uh, with the waters and the waves and the sea. Here he says, I'm promising to destroy you because of your wickedness. This is a warning. This is a promise. And only a God who has the ability to destroy people, the ability to destroy a city as great as Nineveh, could make such a promise. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the word of the Lord. Now, if you grew up in church like me, you were just bathed constantly in the words of the Lord. You heard preaching, you heard sermons, you did devotions, you had to read your Bible. Prophets would come in and out of town and speak the words of the Lord. But the words of the Lord are meaningless, are totally empty, are totally powerless for us unless we conclude that God's words, no matter what they are, are true. In order for us to receive God's words, we have to conclude that God's words are true. A beautiful thing about truth, the thing I love the most about truth, is that truth does not require your subscription to it. Right? If I tell you fire is hot and you don't believe me, guess what? It doesn't make the fire any less hot. In fact, if you want to test your theory, just go ahead and stick your hand in it. And when I was younger, I, I, I would like to spar and argue. I was, you know, given the gift of communication. I was the type of person who would often think about things before I had to think, you know, before I had to talk about them. So by the time I had to talk about them, I was just really, you know, I just really had a lot to say. And so I used to take joy in sparring and arguing with people. The older I get, the less time I have for that. Because what I found as I've just lived life is that the truth has a, has a really nice way of just standing on its own. There's something timeless, tested about the truth that just doesn't require a whole lot of conversation. I've been just reminded by God that my, God, my, my job is to present righteous truth, to make it clear, to put truth on a low shelf so that you might, you know, come and, and get a hold of it, but it's not my job to make you take anything. And I think many of us Christians, our problem is we just haven't concluded deep in our bones, that God's words are true. Now, you would never say that because a good Christian simply wouldn't say that. But if you look at the rooms of your life, you will find all sorts of evidence of disbelief. All sorts of evidence that we haven't received, we haven't really received God's word, which is the fruit of us not believing that God's words are true. It's true that in order to receive God's word, we have to believe God's word. And believing God's word means we lean in to God's word. Oftentimes, friends, when I talk about faith, I frame faith as leaning the full weight of my life on God, trusting that he can hold me up. Trusting that he'll keep me standing upright, right? And so the same is true about God's words. That the evidence, the fruit of believing and receiving God's word is if you lean some weight on it. 
you lean the weight of your trust, lean the weight of your actions on it. And this is where many of us stop. I think it's important to acknowledge, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the presence of doubt, that God isn't afraid of our doubt. He doesn't scold us for our doubt. But I think the essence of true Christian faith is pressing in, leaning in, responding well to the truth of God's word despite our doubt. That even when I'm doubting, even when I got questions, even when I'm scared, I am still doing believer things. In other words, my heart sometimes have to follow my feet. And some of us need to be rock solidly convinced. And we just need to have all the things planned out and all the things. And God has to write on tablets in order for us to obey him. What I've learned that this faith walk with the Lord is, even in the midst of my doubt, even though I'm wrestling with this, God can't lie. His words are true. His plans for me are good. Let me move my feet and maybe my heart will catch up. Let me lean my weight and maybe my faith Maybe my faith will catch up. I do believer things because I've what? I've received the words of the Lord. And so the next thing we do as we lean our weight is we respond to God's word. And Jonah's response was simple. God said, get up and go. What do you think an appropriate response would be? He got up and he went. Simple. Simple. He responded. It's also important for us to look at how the people of Nineveh responded. Jonah got up. The word of the Lord came through Jonah. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the Ninevites, they respond as well. Before I look at how they responded, I think it's important to note that they responded to the words of God. I also want to just mention, in case you haven't figured this out already, that, you know, we know the full story, right? Some of us know the full story. Um, And so we see this message from Jonah as a word of warning, as an opportunity for a second chance. But this, this was not how the message was framed. It wasn't like, hey, if you don't straighten up, in 40 days I'm going to destroy the city. That wasn't how it was presented. How it was presented was, you guys are wicked, your wickedness is on record, time to pay the pipe. I'm destroying the city. And so their response to God's word, their belief in God's word, isn't just, hey, let's fix this so we can get blessed. Let's fix this so we can disrupt God's plans. This is like a genuine response to like God showing them their error, God showing them their sinfulness, God showing them their brokenness. And this, friends, is a picture of repentance. This is a picture of repentance. When they heard the word of the Lord, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. People of Nineveh believed that God meant business. And actually, they weren't trying to turn God's hand around. They were saying, man, God is angry with us. We've messed up. 
And I, and I just, I wonder if we respond this way. We're so saturated with messages and sermons and podcasts and blogs and devotionals and small group meetings. We're regularly encountering God's standard, and His standard in truth is actually a mirror in front of us that shows us where we've fallen short, shows us how we've been in rebellion, and, and all that we might respond to God's Word in the way that the Ninevites did. They declared a fast. Stop eating. We can't eat. They put on burlap, which was a customary cultural way of showing uh, sorrow. They grieved God, and everybody in the whole place went into uh, went in, into sort of a repentance mode, sorrow mode, because they were so moved by God's words to them. Oh, that we might respond that way. But as Western, comfortable Christians that have gotten all too common with a God that sits high and looks low, a God that insists that fear and trembling be our posture rather than this, hey, what's up, bro? When God speaks to us, we want to argue. When God speaks to us, we want to see where the wiggle room is. We want to Google the updated version of God's standards and his principles. And so when God says that marriage is between one man and one woman, we want to look for a loophole in that. It's 2019. When's the update? When's the version 2 coming out for this? We want to argue. When God talks to us about sex and sexuality, we say it's 2019. Like, where's the wiggle room, God? Let's sit down and let's work something out. When God talks about stewardship, how we're supposed to steward our finances, and how we're supposed to treat people, there's this back and forth with the architect of it all, and we don't see that. We don't see that here. We don't hear any record of the Ninevites saying, well, it wasn't that bad. Like, what are you getting bit out of shape about, Lord? We weren't, we aren't that bad. They aren't blaming. They aren't excusing. They aren't justifying their action is swift. It's decisive. Their response is deliberate. It is public, and it is uniform. Sorrow, sackcloth, burlap, ashes, fasting. Let's lock this thing down because we have offended the God of heaven's armies. Oh, that we would respond in that way. Take this a little deeper. Verse 6 begins to tell us how the king responds to this. It's one thing for the commoners to try to clean up their act, but it's another thing for the king to believe the word of the Lord. This warning, this truth, this prophecy comes to the people. It comes to the king, and I'm struck by how this lands on the king because the king has power. The king has authority. The king has the right to reign and to control stuff. His opinion counts. His thoughts count. His rebellion or his resistance or submission to God really, really matters. And so it's important, in my opinion, how the king responds. Now, if if we want to apply this to our own selves, we have... uh, So we're the kings or queens of our own domains, right? We have been giving free will 
We've given the right to make choices. We've given, been given the right to lean in or lean in away from the things of God. And so much like this king, we have say over our lives. We have people that we influence. We have things that have to move when we say move. And so uh, let's take a peek at how this king responds when the word of the Lord comes to him. Verse 6, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. That's really important. He took off his royal robes, and he dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Now, when you read in chapter 3, don't read this part too quickly because there's something in here for us to digest. This, this section requires us to linger and unpack this. Take note that the king does in response, what the king does in response to God's word. He steps down. He dresses down. Then he dresses up in humble clothing, burlap, and he sits in ashes. Note, the king is doing the same stuff that all of the common folk are doing. Because there's no special, like, repentance plan for important people. There's no special, you know, road to repentance for the dignitaries, for the sophisticated, for those who are beautiful or those with means, like, repentance is repentance. Sorrow is sorrow. Humility is humility. And if this king wishes for his repentance or his sorrow to register, he has to step down. He has to dress down he has to bow low. Let him stop there. Verse 7 tells us, Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything. Everybody needs to fast. Verse 8, People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all of their violence. In short, the king is saying everything that responds to my voice needs to respond to his voice. Everything within my power, everything that I control, hear the king at this moment, nobody eats. Don't even feed the animals. Last time I checked, I'm in charge of the two-legged and four-legged beast. Nobody eats, the king said. And everybody under the sound of my voice, everybody under my reign and rule will do what I do. We're following the Lord. We're showing together our sorrow for this. Say, so what's the application for this preacher? I, 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 I'm not a very important man, but I have influence. I have influence over my own choices. I have influence over my own decisions. I have my influence over all my own money and my body. I've been granted stewardship of this church. I've been given broader stewardship in the movement. I, you know, I, have, a, I have a wife that listens to me you know, most of the time. I, <laughs> I have influence a little bit. And so I love the picture of this king. So he, didn't, he didn't send a message to the, somebody else's kingdom. He didn't send a message to other kings. Hey, you guys need to fast. And he said, the stuff that I control... I'm going to bring it in line with God right now. The stuff that I speak to and it listens and responds to me will listen and respond to this message that we got from God because we believed it, we received it, we're leaning into it, we're responding to it. And I would that we look around the room of our life and consider all the things, 
all the things that we've left unbothered by the word of the Lord as it comes. We live so, such segmented lives, whether it's a church part of you, there's the work part of you, there's the, you know, you know, your, your, you know, weekend baseball league, your golf part of you, and your social part of you, your weekend thing. Don't even talk, don't talk to me about my weekend thing. That's, right, that's certainly segmented. And I believe that the Lord expects us to be like this king. And everything that he can touch, everything that he could control would respond in repentance and for uh, and, and, and uh, fall in line with the word that he got from the Lord. As I have command over my money, may it so line up with the word of the Lord. As I have command over my body, may it line up with the word of the Lord when it comes. I have been given, I got kids. I brought kids into this world. They've been gifted to me. They've been loaned to me to raise. May, as long as they live in my house, may they follow the Lord with me. My daddy used to say, you don't have to be saved, but you better play like it if you're going to live here. (laughs) I wouldn't go that far, right? And I understand as our kids get older, there are different dynamics. I don't have teenagers, so I can't speak, you know, with intelligence about how to, you know, deal with a moody, attitudinal, you know, teenager. I do have experience about how I grew up. When my family left for church, we went to church. And if I should fall on hard times today, God forbid, and I need to move back, guess what? When, when it's time to go to church, I'm going to have my behind in somebody's church just because that's just the rules of the house. You couldn't just watch anything. You couldn't just listen to any old music. They were just sort of random book bag checks. You come in and they'd be rifling through your book bag. <laughs> then mom, well, you got my book bag. She said, no, 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 no. This is my book bag that you get to use. There was no no confusion about which God we served, whose drumbeat we marched to. And I think this is important because, man, listen, when I got to college, this isn't everybody's story, but this is my story. When I got to college, I decided to go to church and lean into faith because I I literally knew nothing else. I, I literally knew nothing else. The cement, the foundation of faith had been so carefully poured and perfect at times, a little overboard at times, but the foundation of faith for my parents had been so carefully, solidly poured that I am standing here as a preacher today because there was no question about who we served in our house. And I wonder if, if we take this seriously, as it comes to our kids and our relationships and all the things that we command, like and some of us, I mean, this is quietness, there's a stillness in the room, and that's exactly what's supposed to happen when the word of the Lord hits your heart, when there's conviction, silence, reflection. Because what's probably true is that there are unsurrendered aspects of your life. 
And many of those aspects are unsurrendered because you have not asked them to surrender. You have not insisted that they surrender. And so, therefore, things are going wild. I was so blessed this week as I saw people in our congregation responding to the word of the Lord to, 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 keep, to make good on their vows and go back to the things that they promised the Lord. I, that the fruit of the word gripping your heart and having its effect and, and doing its work. Listen, I, you can run around the church. If you want to run around the church, you can fall out and holler. You can speak in tongues and all that sort of stuff. We're, we're, you can do that here in the vineyard. Maybe you haven't been given. You can do that here. But that's not where transformation happens. Transformation happens when you receive, believe, and respond to the word of the Lord. The fruit of that is when the things in your life, the things that you have control over, begin to fall in line to the words of the Lord. That's the spirit at work. Like I said, you can run and fall out. You can do all that stuff. Hopefully you do that today. I love a lively worship service. But if I had to pick... I would that you respond to the Lord. Third and final thing that I see that they did in chapter 3 is that they laid down their entitlement. They laid down any sense of entitlement. Second chances don't work if you feel like you got it coming, if you feel owed something, you know, and, and the truth is we can be such spoiled brats when it comes to God and his mercy. I said it before, I say it again, we get way too familiar, we get to way too common, we feel way too entitled. And Jonah's first response to God's word in chapter 1 illustrates that. Word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah says, nah, find somebody else. I'm not doing that. I don't like those guys anyway. But the non-believers tend to show us how to respond to God, don't they? As a pastor, I love to see some wretched person who's wretched and they know it come to faith. There's something beautiful. There's something pure about it. It's something we can learn from the admitted wretch when they come to God because unlike the bratty little Christians, the, 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 the wretches who know it understand something that sometimes we don't understand, and that is that God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe me anything. In fact, what it means to be a mature adult, a sober adult, is to have a clear view what is owed to you and what isn't. My father, you tell me all the time, come in the house crying, what's wrong with you, boy? Ruby didn't give me any of her candy. Does she owe you some candy? She, like, she, she's supposed to pay you back some? No, but she gave this one and that. No, no, no. He said, hey, does she owe you some candy? Well, no. Well, fix your face, boy. And all throughout life, he was constantly helping. Do they owe you? They don't owe you. It changes your perspective. Listen, you can be more grateful when you get something if you don't feel like you're owed it, right? 
We haven't walked in the appropriate measures of gratitude in response to God's mercy and grace because we feel entitled to it. We'll mess up again and again and we'll squander it again and again because we can sin more so that grace might abound. Paul said, no, absolutely not. We understand that God doesn't owe us anything and the Ninevites respond quickly because they know that they don't, they don't feel entitled to anything. In fact, verse 9 says, who can tell? This is after the king makes this decree that everybody must fast and all this stuff. But the king says, verse 9, who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce angle from destroying him. I love that verse because it suggests to us that they're not counting on it. They're not counting on God to be merciful. They're getting, their, they're getting their life in order. They're showing true repentance. They're bowing low. They're being humble just because that's what they're supposed to do. And he said, Dude, maybe, just maybe, God will be merciful. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord will look down on us. What are they doing? They're throwing themselves, what, on the mercy of God. Not particularly expecting it. They certainly don't feel entitled to it. This this arrested me this week. Because I think there's a thin line between believing God's promise of salvation, believing the scriptures that are just dripping with uh, reminders of mercy, Full of examples that God is a chance again, God. There's a real thin line between like believing God's promise and expecting his mercy and feeling entitled to it. It's a really thin line. A line that I've crossed more times than I care to admit. And so when you when you lay down entitlement, you are humble. You You throw yourself on God's mercy because God sees true repentance, right? He can't be shocked. He can't be jived. He can't be manipulated. God sees and responds to true repentance. And this this is what Jonah knew. This is why he didn't want to go. He He just knew, right? I would go as far as to say that God is a sucker for this sort of thing. Not that he can be tricked or manipulated, but God, he just, God just can't help but be merciful. He can't help but just give you a second chance. He can't help it, right? It's like our kids when they come and they're really sorry. We're like, oh, man, it's so cute. I, don't do that again, man, you know? I'm supposed to bring the hammer down. I'm supposed to be the man, I'm, Right? Oh, guys, come in there. Oh, oh, sorry, Daddy. Oh, man, come here, man. Come here. <laughs> and this is how our Father in Heaven is. But He's that way only when He sees true repentance. See, our kids, they can fool us, right? They're outside of your door, getting the face. You go, no, I need more power. <laughs> Daddy, I'm sorry. They, they can fool us. I haven't met a man or woman slick enough to fool God. 
God looks down on these people and says, man, these guys are serious. King took off his robe, got off his throne. Man, animals can't even eat. These guys are serious. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, that the kingdom of God is for those who are poor in spirit. Another version says, blessed are the poor in spirit because they are low enough to recognize their need for God. The poor in spirit are those who are humble, contrite. And God in his mercy draws near to that as we see in verse 10. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. He changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened, the destruction he had promised. God, when he sees true contrition, broken hearts, just even the thought that we've offended God, God is moved with mercy. He offers us an opportunity to get it right. He saw that from Jonah in chapter 2, and Jonah cried out to him. Jonah says, I know, this is me. God, you are doing this to me because of my rebellion. God is moved to mercy as a result of this. Now, how are we going to respond to this as a church? Worship team, you can come back as I land this thing. Uh, church, I, I think we need to repent. I think we need to repent. I, I think as Western Christians, we've gotten really uh, lazy and really complacent. And since we haven't, as a nation, placed God on a throne, we, we haven't assigned his words the proper weight. And in light of doing that, we, we don't respond appropriately when God speaks. I was arrested by these words this week as I consider the ways that I'm just a little too casual with God, just a little too entitled to mercy and grace. And I feel like the word for this house, particularly this morning, is that we are to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Even as I spoke, I believe the Holy Spirit is bringing things to your mind, areas and places of unsurrenderedness that you're supposed to uh, lay down and surrender today. Uh, I think that in, in the room, this, there are folks here who have open accounts with God, things that haven't been taken care, care of that, that you're supposed to, like, proverbially speaking, put on the sackcloth, sit in some ashes, step down off your lofty perch, and just get before God on your knees. I believe that that's sort of the mood of the house as we go into worship. And so I want to let you know that the altar is, is open you want to come and worship at the altar? You want to kneel at the altar? You want to kneel in your seat? That is an appropriate posture of repentance. But I don't want us to miss this moment. There's a freshness of this moment where God is speaking, where God has spoken, and we're supposed to respond. And Jonah 3 responds to the things that are bouncing around in your heart, and only you know what those things are. Only you know what those places are.
the word of the Lord is spoken, it behooves us to respond. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the second chance. I pray, Lord, that we will respond well. I pray that everything that is under our command would line up with your word. To fall in line with your word. May an atmosphere of repentance sweep this room. May a godly sorrow and a weight of that just arrest us this morning as we worship you. May we respond in a way that is appropriate and is conducive. Come Holy Spirit. Make a way for us today. In Jesus' name we pray.